0: Welcome to the Yacht Law Podcast, the program that answers your legal questions about buying, selling, and owning super yachts, working aboard them, and more. Your hosts, maritime attorney Michael Moore and yachting journalist Diane Byrne, are here to help you better navigate the luxury yachting lifestyle. While we discuss legal issues, this is not intended as legal advice or a substitute for the personalized advice of your own attorney. Consider the Yacht Law Podcast as a starting point to educate yourself about the super yacht world.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Yacht Law Podcast. Michael, good to see you.
2: Thank you, Diane. Glad to be here.
1: So, the Palm Beach Boat Show just concluded, and as much as everybody was talking about the yachts that were there, the new yachts and the brokerage yachts, there seemed to be a lot of discussion about the judicial sales of super yachts, particularly in reference to Alfa Nero, since the Alfa Nero situation is pretty much in the headlines a lot lately. Um, a few people were asking me some questions about it. I certainly have a lot of questions myself about judicial sales of super yachts. So I thought this might be something really good for us to talk about today.
2: Beautiful. It would be a pleasure. It's something I've dealt with over the years as a maritime lawyer. It's sort of a mainstay. So, uh, you know, fire away.
1: Great, great. So with Alpha Nero, just in case any of you listening are not familiar with what happened, uh, the Antiguan and Barbudan government declared uh, just a few weeks ago that they now have control of the yacht because it had been sitting there for over a year, essentially abandoned. Uh, Creditors weren't being paid. In other words, um, a fuel company that had supplied her with fuel uh, several times had not been paid. The crew members hadn't been paid. Some other companies in the area that were providing services hadn't been paid. So the government decided that because of that and because the yacht was basically just sitting in the middle of the marina, Um, She was abandoned in a hazard to navigation and needed to be removed. So they are in the process of trying to sell the yacht through what we were just discussing a moment ago, a judicial sale. It would be a court ordered sale. So one of the biggest questions, Michael, that some people have asked me is how can the government just essentially declare the owner no longer owns the yacht and they therefore now do?
2: I think this is uh, strikes right at the heart of the problem. Uh, they can't do that. That's a that's a non-judicial taking. Not it's not uh, countenanced uh, anywhere in the world. Um, there has to be some sort of predicate for governmental takings. You know, seizures. You have to have a uh, you know what what's normally called due process. And the only really the only way to do that is to um, it, you know, barring some exceptional circumstances, uh, war times uh, certainly give you some extra power for governmental takings. But generally, around the world, there are hallmarks uh, that have de- you know developed over time for what is effectively a what would be an enforceable judicial sale, which is the way you get the highest return for the for the vessel when it's sold uh, at, at auction.
1: So it sounds like there's there's actually a standard so to speak that most governments follow so what what goes into those
2: well it, it is a standard i i think it would be generally speaking the the, the gold standard around the world is the united states marshal sale this is a uh, this is a sale conducted on order of a federal court uh instructing the marshals to sell the vessel so that is the gold standard there are a lot of steps that follow that and um um, it's If you don't kind of, in one way or another, um, do the steps to create what is called a tantamount to a U.S. marshal's sale, then the sale will not be enforceable. The vessel will be at risk as it travels around the world, and whoever bid at the, the so-called judicial sale may lose their money and the vote, uh, so it's, it needs to be done properly.
1: Okay, so after the court order, then what would follow? There would have to be some kind of awareness among the public, I would guess.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. To some extent, it's a um, it's what's called a legal fiction, uh, but it's a very important legal fiction, and that is notice to the world that uh, this, this, this uh, auction is going to take place, the sale is going to take place. And this, the public notice, uh, in many cases, is as simple as publishing a notice in a paper of general jurisdiction, uh, in the, um, in the location of the vessel. So it might be the local, uh, local newspaper, uh, but you usually have it at least two, um, publications and they give sufficient information in these publications to at least in theory, give notice to a prospective bidders. And, uh, and frankly, any would be claimants that might surface, um, it's it is a legal fiction, but it doesn't mean that the par- interested parties can't go out and do a lot more publication uh, to to make sure that the word gets out that the boat is being sold.
1: Okay, and then what did, what are they required, or what do they generally include in that notice? Does it just say that the bidding will start at X Y Z date, or does it outline the the process for bidding and whatnot?
2: Well, it is a very precise thing because one of the things that you want to be sure of is that everyone is treated equally. Now, for example, uh, there's one one quick example we had on auction last uh, Thursday, Um, and uh, one of the parties uh, got caught by a bridge. The bridge opened, and they were blocked from crossing the bridge, and therefore they were blocked from arriving at the bidding location on time. Well, by court order, it will say, usually it'll say something like 12 noon uh, on the courthouse steps located at, you know, ad- and then address 44 Flackler in this particular case. But if you're late, um, the bidder who was there and bid successfully will protest that the bidder who got caught by the bridge um has an unfair advantage they get a second chance but that's usually will not be allowed the court will say no you were, you had to be there at a certain hour in a certain location certain place and that's part of the bidding process that's what makes it fair um, and so it's very very specific uh, you know the, uh, everything about the vessel itself is publicized in, but the vessel is not on the courthouse steps obviously just people people bidders and lawyers and such. Um, But yeah, it's very precise. This hour, this date, this location, you get one shot, you're you're late, you lose. Um, Word to the wise, arrive early and hang around until the bidding starts. And usually it starts right after the governmental official just reads word for word the order of court. And that's it. You don't very, you read the words, very specific. And then he says, may I have your bids?
1: And then I would also imagine that the the bidding process and the payment terms would also be exceedingly precise.
2: mhm I think you're I think you're looking at uh, you mentioned earlier this vessel, this super yacht and it had a purchase price of over a hundred million dollars. Um, there are people who who have an interest in just disrupting the sale uh for for whatever reason they don't have their financing together. Uh, they're unhappy. They, their claims weren't allowed. They're the former beneficial owner. They want, for whatever reason, they want to dislu- disrupt the uh, the sale. So the the party conducting the sale, which in the United States would be the United States Marshal, uh, would maintain a list of all bidders. Uh, he would normally get a check, a small, a percentage of his the person's highest bid uh, would be uh, presented in the form of a check, uh, and the the marshal would hold all those checks and when the bidding was over and the sale is over, they would return all of those checks except one. The one that he's holding is the one of the successful bidder. And there would usually be a very uh, short period of time for the bidder to come forward with the rest of the money. A lot of times it's 10% down and then the balance to be paid in three days or four days or something. Uh, All again, trying to be as fair to everybody. Uh, If they don't step forward with the, uh, the balance of the funds, then the then the the marshal will reach out to the, the the next highest bidder to sell mm-hmm. the boat.
1: So then, let's say the the first bidder the the deposit clears, they deliver the rest of the money on time, et cetera. There is a specific time in which they would deliver the vessel to that bidder.
2: Yeah, I think that the uh, the uh, we, we have that situation going on uh, in our office uh, even as we speak and. The uh, you know when people make their efforts, they put down their money, they go through the process. I mean, the next thing they want is possession of the vessel. How can I get delivery? But the, but really, the title uh, transfers um, in most jurisdictions um, around the world after a court has um, um, uh, confirmed the, the the sale, and that in turn conveys title. It's a U.S. Marshal's bill of sale in the United States. And, um, at that point, the successful bidder, um, goes to the location of the vessel and it's, um, you know, turned over to them. And so, uh, so possession ownership and, and effectively title is turned over to them. Uh, the bill of sale can be the Marshall's bill of sale is then used to actually register in a flag state. Um, but, um, that's pretty much it in terms of, uh, documentation. Because remember, the tr- the ultimate beneficial owner, the record owner, they may be, they may be they've they disappeared, they're not cooperating, whatever. But you can take that one piece of paper that U.S. Marshals Bill of Sale and register in almost any jurisdiction, any flag state around the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, there have been judicial sales of yachts for a variety of dis- different reasons. Um, this one, obviously, is still pending. And it sounds like it could obviously be challenged in court as well. But there have been other sales that uh, that have occurred in recent months that some people were also getting confused on. So I thought maybe this would be something interesting to talk about, too, why this situation is different than those scenarios. There was the court-ordered sale of um, Axioma a
2: mm-hmm. few months ago. Yeah.
1: Now, that was not a a judicial sale because of abandonment. That was a um, a loan situation, I think.
2: That's exactly right. And that's, that's a big distinction that I think is the safe – Turf. Uh, no one at this point can explain to me why the uh, Antiguan government is not following the safe route. But uh, in the ones that have been successful and were later uh, challenged, uh, if you if you simply proceeded in the normal way to to execute or uh, to enforce maritime liens, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you should be fine. You have a judicial. You have all the other. You know, you have the court order. You have the public notice. You have the bidding process, the payment, and now you've got the vessel. And so the court's going to confirm it. But in the case of Asiama, um, J.P. Morgan had a um, you know a nice mortgage on that boat, about twenty million. It's substantially less than the actual value of the of the yacht. It was very little in the press about other claimants. You usually have crew wages, dockage claims. No one's paid the dockage as the boat sat there uh, for a, a time. But, but all of those claims are underlying are maritime liens and maritime claims. And so this is a judicial process in a court of law, and that's what makes it enforceable. When a court later looks at it, when the, boat, the boat is arrested in another jurisdiction the court looks at and says, "No, this was all conducted properly. You know all the all the bells and whistles, and so therefore we're going to enforce the sale that occurred. In the case of Oxyama, it occurred in uh, Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it will be upheld.
1: You know, in terms of the the other claimants that are often uh, caught up in these scenarios, is there a, a a guidepost by which certain claimants get paid and others don't?
2: uh absolutely um around the world um there is in almost every jurisdiction you have um a lien priority the the priority of the lien is is normally uh determined by the the validity of the lien is uh, start with that the validity of the lien is determined by where it arose um that might be uh where dockage was incurred or where uh the wages of the crew was incurred Uh, And and then our uh, maybe the mortgage was recorded, but the priority of the lien is determined by where the vessel is arrested. So this is a very important thing if you're looking at um, a hierarchy and prioritization of liens. Um, You want to make you you know if you're an attorney, you want to make sure your client is paid. So you want to try to get enough money in the door to pay to at least reach your client's liens. Um, The Um, I recall a case I was involved in it. We redirected the vessel uh, to the Netherlands Antilles as a Dutch law, which gives banks a very high priority. Uh, And, uh, you know, I represented the bank, the Netherlands Ship Mortgage Bank. And, uh, yeah, because we moved it there, it was uh, arrested there and sold there. And later the federal judge in Florida would ask, if he thought that the moving of the vessel was illegal, he said, no, I thought it was smart. Uh, and I think I also would like to say, I think it's always good when the crew gets paid and the crew is paid and that's why they agree to move the vessel. But all these things can be done. But once you get into that court around the world, it's very important to look at how those priorities are set because you may be shooting yourself in the foot. If you don't un- understand, for example, that a U.S. mortgage on a U.S. flag vessel is a very super high priority versus a foreign flag, a foreign mortgage on a foreign flag vessel or a foreign mortgage on a U.S. flag vessel. Foreign mortgages are just not treated as favorably by the U.S. courts as they do U.S. mortgages.
1: That seems to make sense. I could see that. So it's almost in a way the the priority of the the claimants is kind of like what happens in a bankruptcy case. That's it. Sounds like to me, at least. The little, and believe me, I'm not a lawyer. Not pretending to be one. Yeah. (laughs) But But the little that I've read about bankruptcy cases, you've got your your prioritized um, uh, creditors. Uh,
2: It's it's very analogous of the court system of the two places that that move around um, incredible assets, vast amounts of assets, and move them around at high rates of speed there are two courts that are sort of almost separate and distinct from the regular courts. I mean, your big divisions are civil and criminal. civil's redressed by money. Criminal is redressed by incarceration is the, mainly the two big uh, divisions. You can't buy your way out of uh, murdering somebody, you know, that's two different sides of the courthouse. Uh, but um, I think that it's fair to say that, um, if you ever watch a bankruptcy judge in action, it's a frightening thing to see. They they just it's hundred, you know, hundred million dollars here, a hundred million dollars there. The whole idea is to bring on a judicial finality to let people get on with their lives for better or for worse. We're gonna rule, um, and and part of that ruling is setting priorities. Um and there I think there are thirteen or fourteen categories. Uh, In the maritime side of the courthouse, Article three judges, which are admiralty judges are uh, codified into the United States Constitution, Article three, Article three, Section two. And it's all about just resolving these commercial disputes in an order that the law says is most important. Now, for example, if I may just a moment, one of the highest priorities is almost always universally around the world. Uh, wage claims. Why? Because in every court, in every jurisdiction around the world, most most judicial systems say, well, we want the people to get paid first. You know, now, believe it or not, salvage is very, very high in most jurisdictions. Why? Well, because if you don't pay salvors, boats run aground and do massive amounts of damage and um, everybody suffers. You have environmental claims The the vessels lost. Uh, it blocks the navigable waterways. It spills oil to pollute the shores uh, forever. And, uh, yeah, salvage is right up there, right behind um, right behind wage claims. And it just goes right on through the hierarchy um, to you. If you have enough money, you reach, you know, all the claimants, but usually you run out of money because you pay each category fully before you go. If you have three categories on the same, let's say you have 20 crew. Well, that's 20 different claims. But all crew gets paid. The merits, the quantum and the priority is all set there right at the very beginning. And the crew gets paid and then, then you move to the next category.
1: So is there any scenario under which in a judicial sale that the buying party would end up being obligated to pay anybody? Or is it only it's the obviously it's the funds that they pay that will make the various creditors whole. But is there ever a scenario where they would be obligated or could be taken to court, perhaps, to make other claimants whole?
2: I've never I've never seen that happen. I've, I've seen some efforts in that regard. And uh, usually, at least in the ones that I've been involved with, uh, you know, the courts are just sort of brought back to the process. It's like, well, you know, your honor, you put money in the bucket. You look in the bucket, the ship goes away. You got the bucket stays behind. You look in the bucket, how much money's in there. And then the court um, uh, has to distribute the funds. It'll get complicated. Uh, uh, There was a case called the Lord Jim. And um, um, I remember it because, uh, well, the name sticks in my mind because it's obviously a famous novel. Um, But the question was, in terms of priority, the necessary people in that priority were at least in theory, all the same. So you then had to decide, well, if they're all the same category, they're all people that render services to the vessel. Um, how do you, do, how do you then short uh, sort it out? And particularly if you have a declaration um, during the middle of the painting process, which is what happens Lord Jim. Um, sometimes of course, do fashion remedies in the Lord Jim case, the court noted that the bankers were watching the work being done on the boat. And the bankers were noting that all this value is being put in the boat. And the bankers knew as they watched it being put into the boat and making it more valuable, that they watched as their as their collateral became more and more valuable as each day went along. And then ultimately, even though their loan was in default, the mortgage was in default, so when the bankers tried to say, well, we'll take now we'll take a more valuable vessel and pay ourselves to take the court said, you know, not going to let that happen. Let me tell you what we're going to do. And the court did rule that some of these earlier liens had to be paid first. So it's not perfectly, you know, textbook. There's justice. One thing about courts of admiralty is they are courts of equity. They're not courts of law. They're courts of equity. So they really do sometimes just create their own. Uh, They fashion their own uh, remedies right in the middle of uh, these proceedings, but kind of always keeping in mind the way things are supposed to happen, the priority of liens and so forth. Mm -hmm. But there are little nuances that come up in there. It's always fascinating to see how a court rules.
1: Right, right, definitely. So with those scenarios, from the standpoint of the people who would place bids, is there – it sounds like for the most part, things are – pretty straightforward and they're done properly but is mm-hmm. there ever a scenario similar to what's going on with alpha nero i would imagine where it's kind of a, a buyer beware situation where you may not want to put in a bid or may want to sit back and wait to see how things shake out
2: um i think that um it, but if you uh, it's commonly referred to as if you sit on your hands After, if the court has gone through all of those steps that we mentioned—the order, the notice, the bidding process, the payments, deliver the um, vessel—you sit on your hands uh, at great peril. Okay, the best uh, example that I can think of is a captain who arrested a ship for his wages, which were in the range of, I think, seventy-five thousand dollars. He went to the marshal's sale. All of the fancy lawyers stood around for reasons that only they know. Uh, and he ended up buying this ship that was worth millions and he bought it for dollars. Um, and when the when the, when, it, when the confirmation hearing was held, the court listened to everybody and how that all the lawyers for the banks and so forth said what an outrageous thing it would be to let this captain buy this multi-million dollar tanker for you know for virtually nothing. His entire claim was only seventy-five thousand dollars, and so the right thing to do would be to pay him seventy-five thousand dollars, pat him on the bottom, and let him be on his way. And the court says, uh, "Well, let me just establish a few things for the record. Were all of you there? And okay, so I see, for the record, that all of these other parties were there. These all these bankers and so forth. And then when the time came when uh, the, my order was read, none of you did. You you did what is proverbially." called you sat on your hands um so i'm going to confirm the sale i'm going to congratulate the captain on buying this tanker and uh, i'm sure he'll be willing to entertain uh, offers to sell the tanker to a, uh, one of your oil company clients but for today he is the the new owner of this multi-million dollar tanker full of by the way full of fuel full of uh, bunker sea uh, fuel but i think it's um uh, you won't. You to your point earlier point. You won't have a situation. Uh, the whole process is to extinguish maritime liens against that vessel. These are extinguishing for all uh, man. You know for into perpetuity, forever and a day. No, no. There's no do overs. You are paying what. There may have been people who had claims who did not intervene. See, those people are still owed money, but, but why didn't they intervene? It was a public notice. They were given notice of the court. Now, by the way, in most jurisdictions, you have to give actual notice to known claimants. So we always, um, obviously, if, if it's recorded lien against the vessel's title, that's obviously a known claimant. You're charged with notice of that. We take a position that if we know about it in actual fact, um not legally but an actual uh, fact we give notice we always make sure every claimant is advised of the process if they don't intervene they are uh, forever barred they lose their lien and they cannot they cannot then go after anyone for their for the obligations uh, at least as far as the vessel is concerned there may be other parties who are liable but the the vessel itself will not have to stand for the uh, their claims and the people who were successful bidders at the Marshall sale will not have to stand for the claims.
1: Mm-hmm. So that sounds pretty reasonable to me. And I'm, but I'm wondering if that's a U.S. marshal scenario. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if the the differences from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, meaning country to country, mm-hmm. if, are those challenging to deal with? And is there ever is there a, an effort underway to? Kind of make a, a a single standard. Obviously, each country is going to want to do what they want to do. But would the would the courts and would the legal minds globally prefer to see a a a, a more common standard?
2: Absolutely, I think that, and I think that the genesis of that universal standard um, heretofore, uh, at least prior to like two thousand eighteen, um, there there was a. And it was always by analogy, you know, well, what does the U.S. Marshals say? What does the United States judicial system say? And you had this expression uh, that I've always enjoyed because I've argued it many times that, you know, was it tantamount to a U.S. Marshalls sale? Um, and therefore, if it was, generally speaking, it would be enforced. And sometimes it would be even be you'd be trying to enforce it in the U.S. court of law. So even within the confines of the U.S. system. But I think uh, in some time around uh, late uh, 18, uh, 2018 and into uh, 2019, this process from the Comité Maritime International, uh, which is an organization that's been around for a couple of hundred years, um, or at least 150 years anyway, and um, it's the need for uniformity. Maritime law has always wanted uniformity. Um, when you when you travel from Florida to Georgia to South Carolina to Virginia, you want the law to be the same. So you, you want uniformity. Um, you, and so even in the, when a, in a vessel travels from the United States to France in a perfect world, you'd want it to be uniform. So you're a mariner, you're a ship owner, you're moving, you're a yacht owner. You don't want the law to be changing radically whenever you go from port to port and country to country. But uh, the Comité Maritime International now, CMI as it's called, is, has been very successful in getting this entire thing in front of the United Nations. Um, and there is now a, they're very close to a, um, having this convention, is called ratified, uh, that will in fact uh, create a uniform standard throughout the world for judicial sales. It's quite an exciting thing to maritime lawyers because for years it's been a little bit unsure. Um, you know, eighty percent of the world's um, trade uh, travels by boat, uh, and we just have to see the order books to see how things are being are being cranked out in the yacht world. But the whole idea is get everything the same for the most part. And if you remember, the United Nations and signums of that treaty. Then that in that way the law is brought ashore. It's brought into your country, they say. It's brought ashore. Uh, so by sign by signing uh, the convention, um, it becomes, uh, you know. The, and of course, all the banks are in favor of it. Uh, most most of the larger shipping interests are in favor of it. It's more than likely going to pass. It will be passed very soon. I I I, I, I wish I'd have had the moment to see if I could tell who would. Signed on so far, but I think within the within the uh within the uh, the end of this year, certainly next year, it'll be become universal law around the of the you know the several hundred members of the uh, United Nations.
1: Mm. So that would end up covering really everywhere that yachts are sold, cruised to, bought, etc.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that but would definitely know, make life easier. Yeah, these are this is the march of. Uh, you know, it's the arrow of progress. You know, they say the law is at the tail end of the arrow of progress, kind of tugging, holding it back to make sure that we make these decisions uh, wisely. And as the world has become more globalized, um, you, you can see it in, in the, the world that you and I are primarily in. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's no longer that you have boats being built in, you know, Germany and the Netherlands, for example, or Italy. Now it's uh, you know, all over the place. I just saw a beautiful boat at the Palm Beach boat show. It was built in Poland and a lot of boats coming out of Turkey are very beautifully built and uh, and so on and so forth. So, but you, all these people want uniformity. They want to know um, and, and the flag states want uniformity because they're the ones where you record the mortgage. And um, I remember, um, you know, giving the, the first of opinion uh, to the Marshall Islands flag state that banks wanted to know, well, is my mortgage enforceable? I'm going to lend all this money, but here's a question. Is this going to be recognized uh, in the world at large if this vessel is uh, – if the uh, the owner defaults on their note and mortgage? Uh, and the answer to that was yes, it will be enforced because the Marshall Islands is part of the United Nations and has signed on to these other regimes. Uh, but it will be the same way with the Judicial um, Sales Convention.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this will be good to watch. I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out when this actually does uh... – does get ratified. Oh, well, Michael, I think there have been more than a few questions that people have had about judicial sales, whether applicable to Alphanero or other vessels, um, certainly answered through this conversation today. So thank you for your insight.
2: It's, uh, as always, it's my pleasure. Let's see what tomorrow brings.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone, if you have a legal question when it comes to the yachting world, We would love to answer it for you. Drop an email to me, send an email to Michael, and we can feature your question in an upcoming episode. Of course, if you would like to remain anonymous, we will do that as well. That's it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Diane Byrne. Michael, I'll give you the last word.
2: Thank you. Thanks as always, Diane, and uh, we'll, we'll see you soon.
0: Yep. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Yacht Law Podcast be sure to subscribe to us for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or your favorite podcasting service. Remember, the super yacht world can sometimes be complex, and the hiring of a lawyer is always an important decision. Should you need to retain one, the team at Moore Company can send you complimentary written information about their qualifications and experience. Please visit the website moore-n-co.com.